I was speaking to a group of students at a university just last week, and, and it dawned on me that half of the people in the audience, 18, 19, even 20 years old, were, they've never lived a day of their lives when there weren't people living and working in space. That is a monumental achievement, not just for the United States of America, but for the entire coalition of nations that we lead on the International Space Station. As we plan to go forward to the moon sustainably, we want to bring the American aerospace industry with us through a program that we call the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative, CLIPS. CLIPS is fully supported by the 2021 budget and will utilize the capabilities of American industry to deliver 16 NASA science and technology payloads to the lunar surface starting next year. That means next year we are putting payloads on the surface of the moon for the first time since 1972. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Yes, the voice you heard in the introduction was NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine speaking during the State of NASA this past Monday. The occasion? The release of NASA's fiscal year 2021 request as submitted by the White House. While NASA and the White House will haggle with Congress over the coming months on which programs get funded and how much each will receive, one small segment of the budget, which has bipartisan support, is the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, or CLIPS, as it's called. I'm going to read out Bridenstine's words again, as I think they're important in the context that the CLIPS program is not notional. It's not four or eight years from now. This is a program that will see payloads sent to the moon next year by two commercial companies. And it's likely Canadian technology or payloads will be on at least one mission and future missions. Here's what Bridenstine said. I was speaking to a group of students at a university just last week, and it dawned on me that half of the people in the audience, 18, 19, even 20-year-olds, they've never lived a day of their lives when there weren't people living and working in space. That is a monumental achievement, not just for the United States of America, but for the entire coalition of nations that we lead on the International Space Station. As we plan to go forward to the moon sustainably, we want to bring the American aerospace industry with us through a program that we call the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative, CLIPS. CLIPS is fully supported by the 2021 budget and will utilize the capabilities of American industry to deliver... 16 NASA science and technology payloads to the surface starting next year. That means that next year we are putting payloads on the surface of the moon for the first time since 1972. There are now 14 companies that are part of the CLIPS program. They are Astrobotic Technology, Blue Origin, Ceres Robotics, Deep Space Systems, Draper, Firefly Aerospace, Intuitive Machines, Lockheed Martin Space, Maston Space Systems, Moon Express, Orbit Beyond, Sierra Nevada Corporation, 
SpaceX, and Tyvek nanosatellite systems. Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines are the first companies to get contracts. Astrobotics is scheduled to launch its lander in June 2021, while Intuitive Machines is scheduled to launch in July 2021. That's just over a year away. NASA will announce further contracts relatively soon. For those who believe that the space economy should stretch beyond low Earth orbit, the CLIPS program truly is important, and that the first mission is only a year away from now is exciting. I would also point out that Canada has a funded commercial lunar program as well, the Lunar Exploration Accelerator Program. It was introduced last year by the Prime Minister as part of the overall space strategy and Canada's plan to return to the moon. While not quite at the same level or maturity as NASA's program, LEAP is funded at $150 million over five years. It's a very good start, and the first contracts will be announced this year. I'll do a full episode on this program later this year. Now, to learn more about the CLIPS program, today I have a Future in Space presentation by Chris Colbert, the manager of NASA's CLIPS program. The presentation was made January 8th of this year. He provides an update on the program, and importantly, the lessons learned from the first year. Listen in. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, delighted to hear such a large crowd and many old friends on the telecom. Uh, for, for those of you who didn't hear, my, my name is Chris Colbert. Uh, I'm currently the project manager for the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Project. Uh, which is housed here at Johnson Space Center, but we really work for the science mission director at NASA headquarters. So let's move on from the first page of the chart to the second page, um, just kind of outlining how CLIPS got started and where it came from. The, the, you know, the bigger picture agency goal of the theme across a variety of, of activities and programs uh, to, to achieve a sustainable presence of the moon. And, and, and as we've seen the agency doing a lot over the last few years, trying to find new ways of doing business, uh, utilizing public-private partnerships as much as we can, working directly with the international community and commercial community, less of NASA build things itself and more of NASA partnering to get missions accomplished. This will fit right into that framework. Um, let's move to chart three. You know, there's a lot of pieces to this, and again, I'm really just kind of setting context for you here. You know, Gateway is an element of this discussion. Um, Gateway facilitates human access to lunar surface, puts human activity out in cis-lunar space, starts the process of being a sustainable infrastructure for humans to work on the moon and beyond um, over the next decade. Actually, this decade now, isn't it? Yes. Um, lunar science and technology is now specifically being targeted uh, against the smaller infrastructure, um, primarily commercial, wherever possible. So the desire to use small commercial lunar landers as early as, well, 2021. We, we won't make 2020. None of the vendors are quite ready to go that fast. Um, but we'll be seeing medium-sized rovers, or sorry, medium-sized landers that can carry decent-sized rovers as soon as 2022 or 2023. So small in this terminology is in the range of, you know, 100, 150 kilograms to the surface of the moon. Um, Mid-size gets you in the range of half a metric ton, 500 kilograms up to one or two metric tons. Um, all of that is now the 
auspices, if you will, of a commercial. NASA is not actively developing landers in those size ranges. We're going to attempt to utilize a commercial service across the board. All right, so let's move to chart four, and I welcome questions at any point in time if you wish. Um, so commercial lunar payload services is specifically chartered to provide that capability to the agency. Um, and it's chartered under a new philosophy, or at least one that's relatively different for NASA. We want to be the marginal customer. We want to be, we want to, we want to be one of many payloads. Um, we don't want to be the only one. We don't want to be the owner of the mission. We don't want to manage the mission. We really want essentially FedEx to the moon. We want to hand a, a package to the vendor and say, call us when it's on the moon. That, that, that's a little oversimplified, obviously. Uh, but the idea is to take NASA out of the direct ownership role of every aspect of the mission and turn as much of that as we can over to commercial entities. This is consistent with what you've seen NASA doing in commercial cargo and commercial crew over the last few years. Now we're applying a little further out, all the way out to the moon if you can. Um, and we're not doing this in a vacuum. Obviously, we're building off of things like the Google X Prize that ran for most of the last decade. Um, active entities trying to encourage and facilitate commercial endeavors to the moon. Um, so there's a handful of small companies that have been around for a while who are all working in this trade space. And, of course, many of the large, larger aerospace companies who certainly have the capability to work in this, in this technical arena. Uh, what NASA is hoping to do is to help create the basis for that new industry. And we do recognize we're helping create a new industry in the same way we did with commercial cargo and hopefully in the near future with commercial crew. And NASA is, is maybe an anchor tenant in the early stages, but we're doing so in a different fashion. We're trying to rely upon the commercial entities as much as possible with the hopes that they, they will attract other customers, and NASA eventually can be just one of many customers. The CLIPS project is sponsored, both programmatically and funding-wise, out of the Science Mission Directorate, but it's specifically designed to support all the agency's science, exploration, and technology goals. So any mission directory inside NASA can utilize it. Um, we, we get our the, the funding for managing the, the program office out of Science Mission Directorate, and the strategic guidance for what we're doing comes out of the Science Mission Directorate, and the initial chartered missions are all out of the Science Mission Directorate, but we are specifically designed to be used by anybody. Um, and we are in active discussions with the Human Exploration uh, organization about how they will eventually be able to utilize the CLIS contract vehicle as a way of getting ready for human missions. Um, we award the master contract to a pool of vendors. Uh, their job is to safely integrate, transport, deliver all the NASA payloads, utilizing their assets, uh, and their asset covers the lander, um, the launch vehicle, any lunar surface systems necessary to enable the uh, our payloads to work, and potentially down the road, Earth reentry and associated resources, all the kinds of things that essentially, for all intents and purposes, we consider these their mission. We're going to give them a payload, but they integrate it, they integrate it onto their lander. They develop the lander with their funding. They buy a launch vehicle and negotiate for services from the launch provider. Um, and we, we hand them a payload. They integrate it on their lander, and we, you know, we operate it when it's on the moon. Let's go to chart five now. Um, we've gone through two rounds of putting vendors in the pool. The original master contract was awarded in, in uh, November of 2018, and we put nine vendors in the pool, and then we recently added five more vendors in November of 2019. 
Uh, I won't go through the list of companies. You can see their logos here. Uh, it's a mix of new space and old space, mix of small companies and bigger companies. Um, and there's 14 companies in the poll. That's a lot of companies. Um, it's a good expression of interest from the commercial community. Um, obviously, none of these people have flown payloads to the moon on their own yet. Um, really, none of them have flown payloads to the moon for NASA yet. So it's kind of an exciting point in the life cycle. Um, we've got a lot of interest from the, the vendor community. These vendors are mostly being backed by some kind of combination of corporate resources or venture capital resources, or in maybe a couple of cases, you know, you know, rich billionaires who've got money to spend on space. Um, it's a kind of an interesting mix of types of companies. All of them bring, bring their own perspective about how to perform this kind of mission to the table. And I'll talk some more about that as we go along. Let's move to chart six. Uh, Chris? Yeah. This, this, this is Harley. I've got a question here. Sure. I mean, I know what, I know what in, in everyday usage, um, in your first line there, uh, indefinite uh, sure. means. In practice, what does this, what, um, it sounds like it's a, you know, airy fairy, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity. Sounds rather airy fairy. Can yeah. you describe more what that means? Sure can. What, what that means in government terminology, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, IDIQ, means that it's a multi-phased competition. In the first round of the competition, um, vendors are selected via proposal process and are put in a pool, but they aren't actually awarded any work. Um, the, being put in the pool means that they get the exclusive right to bid on future task orders. The way this works, we select originally nine and now 14 companies, all put in the pool. When I release the task order, they're the only companies allowed to bid on that work. So indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity means that I can bid as many task orders as I can afford over the life of the contract. There's not a fixed scope of work or, uh, well, there's not a fixed amount of work. The work can vary depending on what the vendor pool is capable of providing and what the government needs. And you have to be selected via the original onboarding process before you're allowed to compete for the actual work. So being put in the pool doesn't actually guarantee you hardly any money. You have to additionally compete for each task order. And once they're in the pool, the vendors can choose to compete on every task order or only selective task orders. That's entirely up to the vendor. Um, the process gives both the vendor pool and the government a fair amount of flexibility in terms of figuring out who's going to perform tasks, it leaves the competition process open, which benefits the government, and we hope in the long run benefits the community, uh, while also establishing some certainty that the government's going to work and provide resources to uh, at least the pool of vendors. Uh, this is not an unusual contract vehicle. Um, fixed price is obviously a little unusual particularly for a class of services that nobody's ever performed commercially before. But, again, this is consistent with the government's interest in trying to create and establish a, um, a consistent framework for commercial enterprises without the government providing both all the resources as well as all the direction of how to do things. Fixed price allows the vendors to make their own mind up about the processes, the methodologies, the tools, development activities. That's all in their hands, not in NASA's hands. And actually, I'll talk quite a bit about that before we wrap out and some of the things we've learned over the last year. 
any can, more uh, company, yeah. Yeah, can companies be added or removed from this pool? Sure. sure. So, so let's, let's, let's move to slide six. I'm going to talk a little about that. that. Um, that's the on-ramping process. The the um, every we originally said we'd do it every two years. We learned, you know, five months into the initial contract that two years long is only about five months long in Washington D.C. <laughs> um, but the idea is, as the market evolves, the government has the has the opportunity to take a look at the market and add new vendors if the if it appears that that there'd be benefit to the government for doing so, and that the market has grown. Um, I don't think we have any current plans for a new on ramp. Fourteen vendors is actually quite a large number, um, but we'll keep an eye on the marketplace. And if there are vendors emerging that that look like they they deserve the opportunity to compete for these types of contracts, we would probably run another on ramping process. Um, this page actually covers some of the basics about the way the contract structured. Ten um, year contract, which we're a year in, so I can order. I can you know I can. I can turn out task orders that vendors can propose on for, for up to 10 years. Um, and we actually have a clause in there that allows the, you know, even if we award a task order in, you know, halfway through, through year 10, they still have another year to year and a half to complete the work. Um, estimated value in the contract, every vendor who makes it into the pool is guaranteed $25,000. And that's all they're guaranteed. Um, somebody has an open mic. mic. The maximum value of the contract is $2.6 billion. That's a lot of money. money. So it turns out if you fly a lot of missions to the moon, that might go fairly quickly. We can add contract value over the life if we need to. All right, I'll pause for a second see if there's any more questions. Okay, let's move on to chart seven. Um, like I mentioned, since all the work is actually performed under task orders, um, we'll issue our task orders when we need them. The vendors are supposed to tell us if they're going to bid on a task order or not. We'll write a unique statement of work for each task order. So one of the trades the government, you know, puts in place for this type of contract track, we get a lot of flexibility to find specific statements of work or activities for each task order. Um, um, each task order will have its own length or period of performance. Each task order defines its own mission success criteria and evaluation criteria. And as I said, only the vendors in the pool are allowed to compete on the task order. All right, any questions? Um, yeah, uh, Chris, again, this is this is Harley. So I got a follow-up question. Although, if the, if the following you're going to deal with the following later, that's fine. Just put me off until you get to it. Um, the fast. This is fascinating. In fact, I was being, being a little bit coy about about saying that. Could you enlarge on what the use of indefinite was in the previous talk? Um, as part, I did not read the, the uh, EAA or whatever the um, solicitation was, so apologies if it was really clear in the solicitation. As part of the solicitation was was something like at least a bare-bones description of NASA's expected needs uh, 
before this capability as part of the Artemis program, in some sense or another, laid out for the bidders so that folks were not just simply, you know, bidding on some, you know, uh, black hole uh, in the future? The answer is yes, but it was pretty limited, um, and it wasn't documented in the solicitation so much as in the industry day material and the advanced preparation material where we talked about the types of missions that NASA could foresee performing. Um, the biggest thing was uh, science mission director suggesting that they were they were prepared to commit to two landings on the moon per year for science activities. Um, so that gave the vendor pool some indication of the, the amount of work that might be available. We purposely wrote the scope of the statement of work very broad. So we can we don't have to just land on the moon. We can deliver things to lunar orbit. We can deliver things to lunar vicinity. Um, it has to be cis-lunar space, and it can't be humans. We can't deliver humans via this contract. But almost anything else is probably within the scope of the statement of work Science mission director put a specific statement about the intention of landing twice per year for the foreseeable future on the moon. The human exploration mission directorate had some somewhat vaguer description of the potential of utilizing uh, unmanned landers as a way of pre-positioning logistics for human missions. And the space technology mission directorate talked about demonstrations they'd like to do in cis-lunar space of emerging technologies. So the vendors were given some feel for the type of work NASA could forecast and a little bit about the quantity of work, but not a lot of debt. Chris, can you, you talked about small landers and medium landers. Can, can you actually put, uh, can you quantify that more in terms of uh, the math? Sure. So um, first off, from a contractual perspective, the only language in the contract reads that you must be capable of delivering at least 10 kilograms to the moon. There is no upper limit, and that's on purpose. Uh, we set 10 kilograms as the smallest meaningful payload we'd asked for, and in reality, we probably are unlikely to ever use just a 10-kilogram payload. Um, the first round of payloads that we already have under contract were in the range of 20 to 50 kilograms of a mixture of science instruments. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the Viper mission, which is one of the ones we've already put a draft RFP out on. That's more in the range of 300 to 400, actually 350 to 400 kilograms to land a larger, fairly good-sized rover on the moon. Um, when we talk about sample return type missions, which we have not put out yet but would like to do in the future, those are probably going to come closer to a metric ton to two metric tons of landed mass on the surface of the moon. So we can see a fairly broad demand, anywhere from tens of kilograms to a few thousand kilograms, all that would fit science activities. Human exploration is likely to bring some bigger pieces to the table, um, and I think you could fairly reasonably guess that human exploration might want things up to a few metric tons to be delivered to the surface of the moon prior to humans utilizing those assets. Um, so we purposely didn't put an upper limit. We know that the industry doesn't exist today. Nobody's flown into these landers to the moon yet. So our initial entries tend to be on the smaller side, give the vendors a chance to walk before they have to run. Um, but the vendors and the material they've given us are already demonstrating quite a, quite a range of capabilities. 
Hi, this is Tom Colvin from Stippy. I want to just follow up on some of those things you said. So you said SMD, had com going back to Harlan's point about maybe quantifying how much the hand signal might be. So you said SMD sort of suggested two landings per year. HEO said prepositioning assets, but you're saying they didn't give a sense for, you know, they did not, yeah. They did not commit to a specific time frame for those assets or or how frequently they would fly. We know the interest is there, but it has to be part of the bigger campaign for human activities on the surface of the moon, so that's still being formulated. And you, do you and it's fine, you're like, I don't know if you'd be comfortable sharing, but I mean, do you have like a back of the envelope estimate for what HEO and then also STMD might be, you know, looking to do through this in terms of, you know, mass or launches per year or whatever? Yeah, STMD is clearly, STMD will probably be have technology demonstrations available anytime we fly. Um, so STMD is likely to have a fairly steady pipeline of, of technology demonstrations. I don't know that we would necessarily fly a dedicated mission for technology demos, but adding them to the science instruments that SMD is interested in would make a lot of sense to me. Um, so I think I can forecast a pretty regular cadence of technology demonstrations, and in fact, we've got some of them on the first two missions already chartered. Um, but STMD will depend an awful lot upon their funding and how rapidly the technologies mature. HEOMD is a lot harder to, to pin down, uh, mostly because they're still kind of working through the trade space on what goes on the human lander versus what they want prepositioned. Prepositioning is very attractive to reduce the size and the complexity of the human lander. But you have additional complications that everything has to be, you know, the assets that you preposition have to be in the right location for the humans. Um, so we have to demonstrate via clips that our vendors are capable of landing of, with pretty high precision. Uh, you know, let's say within 100 meters of a targeted location, for example. Um, so our HELMD is a little less clear right now. I think they would suggest they're still working through the process of defining the architecture and how these assets would fit into it. Um, but we've had the discussions about, you know, how you utilize clips to enable that and what types of capabilities the vendors are at least talking to us about there for. So I don't have a lot more clarity on HEOMD right now. I think STMD will be this regular cadence of technology demonstrations that they will fit in amongst other missions. Um, and if there was a, you know, big technology demonstrator, they, we could obviously talk about a dedicated mission for that purpose. Right. But SMD has been the most concrete in terms of its plans. That's the twice per year um, of some level of capability of science activity. Okay, thanks. And then also you mentioned for the eventual sample return, mm -hmm. um, you said one to two tons perhaps for landed mass, but um, what would be the return mass? And also do you have a sense for when this capability might start to be, you know, NASA might support this capability development? Um, we, we, it's high in the priority list for the decadal surveys in the Lunar Exploration Advisory Group, so sample return is very high on people's lists. To, to a large extent, for this kind of a contract, we'll have to see how rapidly the vendor's capabilities evolve. Um, right now, I've, many of the vendors are certainly interested. I haven't seen anything concrete from the vendors in terms of a, of a sample return capability. Um, and I, because of that, it's hard to predict exactly how much they bring back. In the NASA models of these kinds of things for an in-house build, if you were landing two metric tons on the moon, you're only bringing back a few kilograms of, of, of samples. Um, so China, get, yeah. China's land, uh, returning two kilograms uh, from their uh, robotic lander and sample return next year. 
yep. that that's consistent with the kind of numbers we've run too. You know, a few, you know, not not tens of kilograms, a few ones of kilograms is is capable in the smaller range. If you get up to the five to six metric tons of landed mass, you can start bringing back more interesting quantities of samples. I see. So then there's no, you, in terms of the time frame you've mentioned, that you're, it sounds like you're waiting for the commercial companies to have this themselves rather than like a Space Act agreement or Catalyst or something like that to try to help yeah. develop it in them? Okay. At least at the moment, we have no plans for things like Space Act or Catalysts. That's not impossible, um, but I have a suspicion where we are today, we're going to see how rapidly the vendor community develops their own capabilities. If NASA needs to help push that along, we can we can have those discussions. Um, and again, we, this is, remember there's a whole walk before you run type discussion. Before we ask them to to you know build ascent stages and return vehicles, we want to make sure they can actually land on the moon the first time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit. Let's go on to page eight. Um, this is just kind of a list of where we are in the task order process. So each task order, remember, is essentially a standalone activity. The first thing we ask for from all the vendors, give us a user's guide. Help us understand what your capabilities are. So we've already received that from the initial nine vendors, and the, the five new vendors are, are currently you know, writing user's guides, and we'll hopefully share that with us in the next month or so. That helps NASA start to bracket or define the, the trade space, if you will, for what the vendor pool can provide. Um, some of the vendors are making that data publicly available, Astrobotic, and all of you could go find Astrobotics users, they published it on their website. Some of the vendors want you to come talk to them about it. Um, this is how NASA starts getting its arms around how we should define payloads and what kinds of, you know, what kinds of capabilities exist across the vendor pool. Um, a big part of what, how NASA gets benefit out of this type of a contract is via the competition across the vendor pool. If I if I define a mission that only one vendor has the capability of providing, I'm not going to get much competition. So understanding what their capabilities or range of capabilities are helps us define both uh, what, a, what our payload should look like and give us a feel for how much competition we'll get when we have a certain mission in mind. So that was task order one. We asked the vendors to all deliver us the, their user's guide, and that's how they got paid the $25,000 they were guaranteed to get. Task Order 2 was released last spring um, and awarded at the end of May last year. Um, that's the first, first delivery to the Pay with Moon. I'll cover that in a little more detail in the next chart. We did select three companies for that process, and like I said, I'll hit that in the next chart. Task Order 3, we did a short study on mid-sized landers. We needed more information of, from our vendor pool about how rapidly they were going to be able to carry things in the hundreds of kilogram range up to, you know, between 500 kilograms and a metric ton. So we did a short study last summer, selected a couple of vendors to give us more data. That helped us shape the framing for both the on-ramp process and then what's now become Task Order 20A. Uh, 20A is the Viper mission. Some of you may have heard of Viper. I'll, I've got a chart that will cover it in a little more detail in a moment. This would require a lander capable of landing close to close to 400 kilograms on the moon. Uh, that would deliver a NASA rover and a suite of instruments to the South Pole. We released the draft of that task order back in November. Um, we've collected a bunch of comments and questions from the vendors, and we're now working on the final version of the draft, or the final version of the task order released sometime this spring. And then task order 19C 
uh, will actually turn into two missions. We decided we collected another round of, in, uh, of instruments within Science Mission Directorate. Um, we decided to split into two missions to the moon. One, the first one will be 19C. It will go to the pole. We released a draft task order for 19C in mid-December, and we're still just now collecting comments and questions back from the vendors. That will also get released sometime early this year to spring. And then 19D would follow that with the rest of the instruments and would go somewhere other than a pole. So what the vendor pool is seeing right now is um, task order two already awarded, uh, three companies selected, two still working. I'll talk some more about that in a moment. Uh, the Viper mission, uh, which would be a midsize, and then another one back in the 100-kilogram range, uh, 50 to 100-kilogram for 19C, and probably in that same size range for 19D. And all all three of those could get awarded before the before this summer or by the middle of the summer. Depends a little bit on how how rapidly the vendor pool is capable of responding and how much it costs and how that fits the budget. So that kind of gives you a feel for what's coming and how rapidly we're moving. We're trying to move pretty quick. Um, let's go to the next chart. Should be chart nine. I'll talk specifically about task order two. Any questions? Yeah. Yes. This is Dallas. How are you? Doing great. Um, uh, earlier you said that in order to bid on the task orders, one had to be awarded a CLIPS contract. Initially, yep. what if a new party came along with a commercial lander? Uh, how would they get involved in NASA payload delivery if they haven't, if you don't have another on-ramp round? Yeah, so well, that would be one of the reasons we would have an on-ramp, right, is if there was somebody out there with demonstrated capability that NASA ought to be taking advantage of, that would be the reason to do an on-ramp. But they also all have the opportunity to partner. These are the – we've awarded contracts to 14 companies, but this is a very loose – we did not ask them to identify or commit to a list of partners or subcontractors. They're allowed to build whatever coalition makes sense to them each time they bid on a task order, as long as the prime contractor is one of our 14 companies. Okay, so so a, a third party could come in as a sub under yep. one of these. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and we didn't. We you know this was a fairly um, purposely because again we we know we're we're building a new industry. We expect there to be some, you know, some 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 considerable shakeout in this industry over the next few years. We were trying to leave a lot of room for companies to reconfigure themselves as appropriate <laughs> based on market forces and not, not just how NASA is doing business. So, yeah, I, we're going to see some shakeout. We see some things. We left things loose so that companies, if they reconfigure and choose to partner in different ways, that's largely going to be fine with us. Um, the one exception to that that I'll give is that the prime company has to be an American company, and both the lander and the launch vehicle have to be at least 50% domestically sourced. They have to be built in this country. Okay. Um, any more questions? All right, so let's talk a little about Task Order 2. That's the one we awarded back in May. This was our first real commitment to flying payloads to the moon. We awarded to three companies, um, and there's some pictures there of each of those companies' concept pictures. None of them have actual hardware yet, but there's their concepts. Um, and, and the various teams at the at the award announcement. Um, Astrobotic was awarded a roughly $80 million contract to fly as many as 14 payloads. I think we're going to settle on around 11 payloads for them to fly to the to the moon. They're going to Lacus Mortis, 
and their original intent was to fly July of 2021. Um, though again, this, these are their missions. They get to determine the landing date and the landing location. So um, each of these vendors might make their own changes over the life of this contract, and we expect that. Uh, second contract went to an intuitive machines, a Houston-based company. They awarded $77 million to fly five payloads to the moon. They're going to Oceanus Pro Solarium, and again, July 2021 timeframe. The third company was Orbit Beyond out of New Jersey. They were awarded $97 million to fly four payloads to Mayor Imbrium. Their original goal was to fly in September of 2020, uh, but before the end of last summer, they had already decided they were not going to be able to meet that schedule or even complete it within the time frame we originally requested. So they asked to be released from the task order, which we did, we granted. Uh, but they're still in the pool and welcome to bid on future task orders. They're, they're restructuring so that they think they'll be better positioned for future task orders. So we still have two active task orders, uh, Astrobotics and Intuitive Machines. Uh, we're well through the payload um, planning process at this point. We're signing ICDs with the companies. Uh, moving through the process of getting them ready for integrating the payloads um, onto their landers, which will, for both companies, will start sometime near the end of the calendar year, late fall timeframe into next spring, with a goal of landing in the summer to late summer of 2021. I had a question. Hi, Chris. This is Allison Zuni with NASA Inc. Yeah, so uh, I see that both uh, Astrobotic and Tudor Machines are pretty close in, in award, but Astrobotic has to deliver a lot more payloads. So is the award based on maybe uh, development of the lander, or is it based on the mass and volume of the payloads? Um, the, the, the right answer, first off, we don't pay for development. They have to develop the lander off their own resources. Um, so, no, we're not paying for development of the lander at all. What we're paying for is uh, the best value to the government in terms of delivering payloads to the moon with what we consider a reasonably likely, reasonably high chance of success technically and a reasonably good chance of meeting the schedule they proposed. Um, particularly at the beginning, we weren't measuring this in terms of dollars per kilogram or trying to, to really um, push too hard Again, we recognize none of these vendors have done this, right? So we aren't evaluating past performance. We aren't evaluating um, their design, per se. We're, we're evaluating how likely we are, they are to deliver our payload, basically. So we get a chance to look at the design, but we aren't guiding the design. Um, and at least in this first go-round, these are fixed-price bids. I actually don't get to see hardly any details about what that money is being spent on. Um, that's one of the culture changes we're getting used to. We're used to knowing an awful lot about what it costs to do something. Um, you know, in a fixed-price world, they basically have to tell me, here's the total. Don't worry about how I'm spending it, but as long as I get it done for that amount of money, NASA, you should be happy. Um, yeah, you, you know exactly what it's going to cost. That fixed-price look? Yeah, I, there you go, right? But, but here's what I don't know. Are they being backed by venture capital money, and, and did they bid this at a loss to get started in the market? I don't think that's likely, <laughs> but but yeah, it seems likely these companies are, I'm hoping these companies are capable of performing this mission for around that dollar amount. Um, okay, it, it, it just uh, it just strikes me as disproportionate amount of payloads on one, you know, five yeah. for intuitive things at 14, so it would seem 
either the payloads, the five payloads, you know, equals about the mass of the 14 payloads because the award is about the same, or yeah, I'm just wondering how that would be coming. We would, so, so for task order two, we were trying to accomplish two or three things um, very specifically. One, get out as fast as we possibly could. The industry needed NASA money to stay, stay alive and get moving. Two, to give as much flexibility to the vendors as we could. The Because we didn't really know a lot of detail about their capability yet, we, were not, we didn't want to set a group of payloads that only three of the nine vendors could bid on. So we left it very open to the vendors. We, basically what we did is we said, here's, here's, I think we said 14 payloads. Here's 14 payloads. You tell us which ones you can fly and when you can fly them. And we really didn't compare them to each other in terms of best value. Down the road, we probably won't operate that way. Once we've seen some success in the community and we've got some track records to work from, you'll see us be a little more um, clear about what we want delivered and how we want it delivered. And that, I'll talk some about that in the lessons learned. Uh, what we did was was trying to create maximum versatility in the commercial pool, which I think we we achieved, but it created a, quite a bit of uncertainty about who was flying what and how they would fly it, uh, which we're having to work through as we've awarded those task orders and, and work through them. Um, these were I'll, I'll say it this way: don't don't. Don't take this to the bank. I'm going to say it more for effect than reality. In many ways, these were all throwaway payloads. If they completely fail, we aren't losing much. These were payloads that were already existing inside NASA that were either already on the shelf ready to fly or could be made ready to fly at a very low cost. None of them are expensive. All of them we could afford to lose without, you know, huge heartache um, because there's huge risks, right? First time these people have flown to the moon. First time they've integrated payloads onto their hardware. Uh, we weren't going to, you know, A, we didn't have a huge payload to give them. B, we wanted something that if it failed, it was okay. We weren't going to, you know, we, aren't, we weren't going to take a huge bath. Uh, we acknowledge as an agency we're willing to take more risk in this process than is typical for NASA. Now, let, let's have that discussion if they, if they crash. If both my first two vendors crash, we'll talk about how much risk we're willing to take again, I guess. But, does that provide some oversight in, the, in their development to see if they are meeting their milestone date to, to reach the July 21 launch date? Yes, there are some checks and balances, though it's, again, we left high flexibility in the contract structure. They got to tell us what milestones they wanted to meet. We suggested four or five milestones that would be typical in any development life cycle, but they're not things like the lander CDR. Um, we assume they'll have a lander CDR, but it's not a milestone they're required to, to hold or even invite us to. And in fact, neither of these two vendors is inviting us to their lander CDR. We're really buying an off-the-shelf commercial service. They have to design a lander. They're building it themselves. We're taking the leap of faith that says we believe you can land on the moon. So the award is after they deliver the payloads, or do you have some award money throughout? We, we, so again, we're building a new industry. Our, our money is important to making the industry move forward. So for both of these initial contracts, and I'm going to emphasize the word initial, we will pay the vendors up to 90% prior to actually even taking off. So they'll have most of the money before they ever launch. If they crash, they don't get the last 10%, but we'll still have paid them most of the money. Um, that was on purpose. 
Uh, we're not necessarily doing the best to protect the government's investment. We know we're creating an industry. The early cash flow is very critical to most of these small companies. They need the NASA dollars to be able to – the first thing they all got to do is go sign a lunch contract, and, and it turns out that SpaceX and ULA want a fair amount of money up front if you're going to sign a lunch contract. So we're willing to pay, at least in these early ones, these early task orders, quite a bit of money at the early stages before we even know if they'll fly to the moon. Over the life of this contract, that clearly will change, right? As we've established some track records and we start seeing some performance, you'll see NASA holding more and more of the money back to award after successful delivery. But in these first few task orders, uh, particularly this very first one, we purposely allowed the vendors to get a lot of money up front because we believe that's what they need to start the industry. Very good, very good. I, I worked on the NASA COPS program, and we, we were similar. We did the pay-on-performance milestone payments. Yeah, yeah. In fact, mm -hmm. we, 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 we actually had studied that one. That was one of the ones we looked at as we were developing our process. Um, so the, the concept makes a lot of sense if, if your real goal is to establish the industry. It isn't necessarily the cleanest if, if you know, you're trying to get the best bang for the duck from a government perspective. Um, but like I said, we were very upfront with the community. We were up front in Washington. We were up front with Congress. We were up front everywhere you go, all the way up to the administrator's level, saying we acknowledge we're taking high risk and that this is an important role for NASA to play in helping to create the industry. You know, most of you are aware of what I am. You know, the, the, that, that, that willingness to take risk sometimes changes if risk uh, shows up. <laughs> um, and one of our three vendors that we awarded to originally has already told us they can't complete the mission. Now, the good news was it happened so rapidly I hadn't actually paid them any money. Um, but, but that's already a sign that this is risky, that, that, that the vendors finding the capital to build a lander, to design a lander effectively and get it through the development process is a non-trivial thing to do. I will say the two vendors that we're still working with are, are showing very good signs of progress at this stage. Both companies are... We're pleased with what they've completed, um, you know, six months into the contract. Both of them look like they have a reasonable chance of landing in 2021. I won't promise they'll, they'll both land in July of 2021. Uh, but landing during 2021 feels like a very achievable milestone for both companies. All right, let's go to chart number – oh, why am I – my page numbers were there yesterday. Chart number 10. <laughs> um, brief discussion about Viper, and then I'll jump into some lessons learned. Um, VIPER stands for Volatiles Investigation Polar Exploration Rover. This is a big step up. Task Order 2 was small science instruments. You know, no one instrument was more than about 12 kilograms, and collections of them that may or may not have anything to do with each other, stuff that was readily available and could quickly be thrown out to the vendor pool. VIPER is a very different type of mission. VIPER is a NASA-developed rover um, that will be over 300 kilograms, probably by the time you put the instruments on it and some of the other hardware close to 350 to 400 kilograms, that we're asking the vendors to deliver the moon on their lander, help the rover get off the lander, and then it's NASA will then manage the rover as it crawls around in the South Pole, trying to identify and characterize the distribution of volatiles. Um, so it's got a suite of instruments on it that are all about um, understanding what the volatiles look like. It's got a drill. It's got other tools to help it do some assessment of volatiles and their distribution. What we're trying to do is learn a lot more about what the volatile look like in the polar region and whether or not we can utilize volatiles to help um, provide water and fuel for humans down the road. Uh, Viper is intended to 
to operate for as long as you know, 100 days, uh, it'll, it'll, it's got a fair amount of power. It'll have its own communications infrastructure. It's got its own power system. Basically, all we're asking Clips to do is provide a ride to the moon. When the lander climbs down off the, you know, the rover climbs down off the lander, drives off, and does its mission. So, uh, we're done with the Clips lander at that point in time. The rover is in the range of one and a half by one and a half by two meters, so it's a pretty good size. Um, it's in formulation right now. They've gone through SRR. PDR will be fairly early this year. Um, the, the goal was to have it through uh, design in early 2021, through assembly in 2022, ready to be started to assemble on top of the uh, – ready to be integrated together as the rover and then handed to the clips vendor sometime in late 2022 for a mission in either late 2022 or sometime in 2023. Schedule is still being worked out. Um, the vendor pool has this task order. This is significantly more challenging. Obviously, this is a fairly expensive mission from a NASA perspective. The amount of risk we'll take here is different than you saw in task order two. This is giving us an opportunity to talk through some very different relationships with our clip vendor than what we did on task order two. Um, we received a lot of questions back from the vendor pool on this one. And at this stage, we're, we're starting to, you know, we're actually having to slow down a little bit to make sure we've considered everything the vendors told us and everything that the headquarters understands about the mission profile. But I expect we will release this task order and get a vendor on board sometime this spring or by early summer, hopefully. Okay, so let's talk for a couple minutes about what we've learned over the last year from working this contract. Um, this is slide 11. And it's really the last slide on lessons learned. Some some obvious ones that I've kind of already hit. It, we've learned pretty, pretty – we knew this, but it was been confirmed in interactions over the last year. NASA is actually pretty important to establishing the early commercial capability. The Google X Prize was out there for many years, and no vendor you know, fully succeeded and never got anything anywhere close to the moon. Um, part of what we heard from the community was that it wasn't enough money. Um, the Google X Prizes just weren't big enough. And Google X was basically putting all the money at the end for the most part. Um, and the vendors need cash flow up front to be successful, particularly the small companies. So NASA is important to getting this process running. And I think we've seen that in other areas where NASA and the commercial community are trying to partner together effectively. As a whole, I'm, a, I'm both impressed and very pleased with the capabilities of the vendor pool. Um, the The... Pretty much every company we put into our pool has impressive capabilities and impressive level of current investment. Um, the the hard part of all this, though, of course, I, you know, I, nobody I know believes that there's enough commercial activity out there to keep 14 companies alive, right? Um, there's probably not enough commercial activity out there to keep five companies alive how this market unfolds will go a long way to determining both what the pricing models look like down the road and how successful the companies are as a community. And we have very little way of predicting that. The two companies we've contracted with right now, both are carrying additional payloads that NASA isn't paying for. Astrobotic is carrying as many as a dozen payloads that other people are paying them to take to the moon on the same mission that they're carrying NASA payload. And intuitive machines, I believe, is up to four, three or four payloads that other people are paying them to carry. So there's, there certainly is some evidence that commercial entities will participate in this marketplace, but how much they'll participate, how, how, you know, healthy that makes the industry 
I don't think we know how to predict, and I don't think the companies know how to predict yet. That will have a big effect on both how robust our vendor pool is and how rapidly it grows. Um, the next bullet really is kind of hitting things I expect all you could guess. You know, this is really a partnership between NASA and commercial entities, and both sides are having to, to make adjustments as to how we do business. Um, this will shock all of you. <laughs> NASA has a hard time sticking to a set of requirements. <laughs> um, but when you're living in a fixed-price commercial world, you know, you don't get to call FedEx up halfway to the, you know, you gave them a package and they're halfway delivered. You don't get to call them up and say, hey, add these three more things to my package. It doesn't work that way. Um, we have to learn to write requirements that we're actually willing to stick with, and that's challenging for us as an agency. Um, the, we also have to approach the mission concept in a different way. Getting our head wrapped around the idea that this isn't our mission, that we don't get to define all the milestones, that we don't get to review the design, is a cultural change that, as an agency, we find challenging. We've already gone through that to some extent on commercial cargo and commercial crew. Um, Clitz is trying to go even further down that path where we didn't even participate in the CDR for their design, for example. Um, that requires NASA to take leaps of faith that we find challenging. On the other side, the commercial vendors aren't all ready for the responsibilities that they have to take on if NASA isn't running the mission. I think most of them have a pretty solid concept of what that means, but as we all know, there's a difference between, you know, you know, defining a plan and executing a plan. Um, and all of the vendors are bringing levels of maturity at defining things like their mission ops capabilities or how they will handle mission assurance. Um, for small payloads like we put on task order two, the mission assurance discussion is very light. For a more complex mission like Viper, uh, we have to have a much more complicated discussion about mission assurance and who has what types of responsibilities. Um, when we talk about flying NASA payloads with other commercial payloads, who, as, as you know, as the payloads have to live with each other, who has responsibilities for ensuring that they they work together the right way? If our commercial lander gets to the moon and doesn't have as much power as they projected, they can only power 16 of the 30 payloads. Who decides which 16 payloads get the power? All of those kinds of things need more, more discussion and more maturity. Um, NASA will help with those discussions, but we're really looking to see the industry lead and define what their commercial services are intended to do. Um, that's going to be interesting discussions as we go forward. Uh, I also think our science community in general is used to once-in-a-lifetime opportunities to get an instrument to a foreign, you know, an extraterrestrial body, whether it be the moon or Mars or an outer planet. They're used to once-in-a-lifetime type missions. Maybe if you're extraordinarily lucky, you get a chance to build instruments twice to go to Mars. Um, the world is different if you can go to the moon every year. Um, if we're flying twice a year for the foreseeable future, we might be delivering dozens of payloads every year. Um, that should change the way we look at both human exploration and lunar science. And that's a cultural change that, that the community is just starting to get its, get its head wrapped around, how that would change what they do. You, can, you don't have to come up with a right, you know, the perfect answer that has nine decimals of reliability behind it. You can fly an experiment that looks good, but maybe didn't have perfect reliability. If it failed, you get a chance to fly again in two years. I think that's going to change the industry. I think that's going to change the way science approaches building things and studying things. 
Um, can I just can I just add to that, Jim Headed Brown? I, I would also add that from an academic point of view, you know, experiments can be conceived, designed, and executed by graduate students in a five graduate career. That's huge, huge yep. game changer. Yeah, I, I didn't talk much about it, but we we hope to be able to go from the somebody proposes an instrument to being on the moon in, in two and a half years. Um, we're going to come close to that with Task Order Two as the as the vendors mature and get a little more established. We think we can get that cycle even faster. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of time it takes just to build the hardware, but if if we get robust enough. Pathways going, vendors can start ordering things along lead items like tanks earlier in the life cycle. So, I, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. It's very attractive to be able to to do all that within the life cycle of a grad student, for example, um, or to be able to propose a series of experiments and get them all, you know, four flights to the moon in ten years. Okay, those are all the charts I had prepared, and we're right on an hour. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter, at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space, but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.